0: One of the most notable and beloved aspects of Irish-American culture is the traditional music scene. And the story of how Irish music became popular in America
1: goes hand-in-hand with the history of Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries. In 1845, a massive famine devastated Ireland. It lasted five years, and in its wake, the population of Ireland had been reduced by roughly 25% from deaths or emigration. Many of those who left the island came to the United States.
0: Any group of people that are forcibly uh, moved from somewhere, they are incredibly nostalgic about where they come from.
1: Scott Spencer is an ethnomusicologist who runs the music library at the University of Southern California.
0: This was a group of people that had um, really been ripped away from
1: a place that, uh, that they loved. One generation later, Irish Americans were distant spectators to a nationalist uprising for Irish independence. Known today as the Easter Rising, it was forcibly suppressed by British troops, resulting in over 2,000 casualties. By then, one-fifth of the U.S. population claimed Irish heritage through immigration or ancestry. And a strong community was forming around this shared sense of identity, especially through music. You have
0: um hundreds of people getting together in this big nostalgic thing of um, people from all over Ireland instead of just a regional area, all collecting together for this music, this dance, this uh, uh, social uh, event. And there's no microphones. So how do you get the sound across to everybody who's dancing? Be
1: loud. Well, I'd love to drill down into some of those musicians. Uh, Tell me about this guy, Patsy Toohey. Uh, What did he play? So Patsy Toohey is a really interesting character. He played a thing called the Illan Pipes,
0: um, which is U-I-L-L-E-A-N-N, Irish for elbow. It's a bellows-driven bagpipe. Instead of one that you you blow into a bag, you actually Uh use a bellows to inflate it. What he's doing is really loud. It's built for dance halls. But he's still being really incredibly flexible with the music. He's doing a lot of really intricate runs and ornamentation. So he's doing something that's really traditional, but it's also got kind of an American flair to it.
1: Well, another very important character in the story of Irish music at this time was a woman by the name of Ellen O'Byrne. Tell me something about her. So Ellen O'Byrne,
0: she is, she's another person that's um, kind of amazing uh, character in uh, the recording industry here. She's um, she's thinking outside of the box. So she's born in Leitrim, County Leitrim in 1875. She moves at age 15 to New York City and marries, uh, marries a Dutchman by the name of Justice DeWitt. They opened together a store in 1900, um, probably, I think, Thirteen sixty Third Avenue, New York City. And it's a real estate business and a travel business. And they're doing (laughs) a lot of um, uh, work with steamer ships going back to Ireland. And um, (laughs) she's capitalizing on the nostalgia around this. Um, Easter Rising is 1916. Uh, There's a lot of uh, big splashy headlines in New York about what's happening back in Ireland. The Irish diaspora is really interested in what's happening and trying to keep connected. So they keep coming into the store and asking, do you have any recordings? there were a few, there weren't that many. And so at one point, Ellen O'Byrne DeWitt goes to Columbia Records and says, we really need um, Irish recordings. There was another company, I think Jeanette, uh, that had been um, doing some Irish recordings, but not much traditional stuff that you could do dances with. So she goes to Columbia and she says, I'll tell you what, I will promise that I'll buy 500 recordings if you record Irish music for me. And they say, okay. So her son, uh, Justice Jr., goes out to Celtic Park and looks around for, uh, it's a sporting event uh, institution, and uh, there's usually musicians that are doing busking around the area. So he goes to find musicians, and he runs into Eddie Herborn on accordion and um, John Wheeler on banjo, and asks them if they would come into the, the studio and record so we just heard the stack of barley and if you listen in really closely you can hear that there's a strong downbeat there's kind of a backbeat that's going on there too but the music itself is really based on dancing So if you hear them playing, they're really going for the downbeats and they're trying to get a little, as they say, lift going on too a little something that will get the dancers up off the ground. John McCormick, probably one of the first international recording stars in history. Um, Caruso might have been in there as well, but McCormick really captured hearts um, on multiple continents. to I have to do the uh, the academic scholarly stuff here. Born in eighteen eighty four in <laughs> Athlone in Ireland, um, the fourth of eleven children. He uh, his parents uh, worked at the Athlone Woolen Mills, so he came from a pretty working class um, background, a pretty rural you know working class background. Yeah. His first I believe his first recording was in nineteen oh four on the wax cylinder, and um, but then his uh, his cherished and beloved things were uh, recordings from Victor from the 1910s and 20s. He was absolutely known for singing those real uh, heart-tearing songs. Makushla is actually my heart. And um, I think a lot of people in Irish America would know it's a long way to Tipperary or the wearing of the green. And again, he really benefited from political things happening in Ireland, um, the end of the war, this incredible feeling of nostalgia, and also the burgeoning recording scene. And he happened to be at the right place at the right time with a really good voice.
1: Yeah, uh, with the right voice, that's for sure. Yeah, beautiful set of pipes. Well, to move from pipes to strings, we don't want to leave out the fiddle players, right? Who were some of the key fiddle players and, you know, what was their style?
0: So here's a really funny story. Um, we have So we have all of these people that had emigrated from Ireland to the U.S. And in the U.S., it didn't really matter if you were from County Sligo or County Mayo or from Dublin. Sure. Um, it's, it's just it's like all in Ireland. the US. <laughs> yeah, it's all Ireland, exactly. And if you're in a foreign land, you are kind of gravitating towards other people from your homeland. It doesn't really matter where you're from. Even
1: if you didn't like them before.
0: Right. You get together in New York and you're all Irish. Exactly. So you have this really interesting situation where you have two guys that had grown up literally a stone's throw from each other. And really, I don't think they even knew each other. This is James Morrison and Michael Coleman. Both were from County Sligo. Um, Morrison, born in 1893, um, Michael Coleman in 1891. They both moved to the U.S. in about the same time, 1914, 1915. And um, James Morrison was known as the professor. Um, Very staid, sort of dependable, excellent musician and he was in huge demand for uh, for dances up and down the east coast michael coleman was a little bit more of a rakish paddy. he was a little bit more of a rogue <laughs> and he um would sometimes double book himself for gigs he was known for not showing up or showing up in an, uh, um, an inebriated state but he was just a bombastic amazing player <laughs> Again, at the right place at the right time. Shannon, Vocalion, Columbia, OK, New Republic, Pathé, Dewitt, Victor, Brunswick, Decca, um, just a really prolific recording artist. Um, Died, unfortunately, quite young, but you can still hear the Sligo style in New York City to this day,
1: mainly because of these two musicians. Do the musicians themselves, are they aware of that? Or, you know, that's... Just doesn't matter to them. Um, It's a really interesting thing, in fact. If you go
0: to different sessions, and you can find a session in pretty much any major city in the U.S. and a lot of small towns too, this is where musicians just get together and play just for the fun of it. You, You can go down to an Irish bar, and you'll find musicians that are there every Tuesday or every Sunday. Yeah. So buy them a pint. And um, and go ask them about this because they will, they'll tell you for every single tune that they play, they'll tell you where they learned it from, from whom That's they learned cool. it, what county it comes from, what its lineage is. Um, they know all of this stuff. And some of them don't read music, but they have all of these stories in their heads. Um, they can relate it back to a particular recording or to a particular player or even a particular day where they learned it from somebody in Ireland or in New York or in Boston or Los Angeles. It's um, it's pretty incredible. So all of that lineage is there, and they can tell you about the particular style that they play in, the particular people that they see as influences, and even the particular recordings. A lot of the musicians will look back to these recordings and say, this is a particular style, and this is a style that I adhere to.
1: Scott, thanks so much for joining us on Backstory today. A pleasure. It was a pleasure to be with you. Scott Spencer runs the music library at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Wheels of the World, How Recordings of Irish Traditional Music Bridge the Gap Between Homeland and Diaspora.